Jimmy Sony, I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you so much for making time and for coming on. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. So where I typically like to start, um, you know, I know a lot about your background. We're going to get into some of it in this interview. Um, but for people listening that aren't familiar with with your work, with kind of what you do, what's the 60 second version of your story? I'm an author and I have had the good fortune of exploring a bunch of different themes at book length that engage me. And it's been you know, the thrill of a lifetime to, to explore some of these subjects. But I guess that's the 60 second version is I'm an author who gets to basically spend anywhere from three to six years nerding out on topics. It's great. In three to six years is an incredibly long, you know, period of time. It's something I've got to explore when we get into our full length interview of one of your books, um, The Founders, in, in a little bit. You know, you've spent your career writing about a really diverse range of topics. That was one thing that just kind of blew me away. You know, you've written about uh, the origin story of PayPal and kind of the PayPal mafia. You've profiled historic mathematician Claude Shannon, whose work is deeply technical and you know very important. And your most recent books about one woman's twenty-five year quest to restore the beloved carousel at Brooklyn Br- Bridge Park totally disconnected. How, you know, how do you decide what to write about? And are there themes or ideas that tie your work together? Yeah, there's that great, um, you made me, when you were saying all that, you made me think of that like great Winston Churchill line. Like, and I think he said this, there's always stuff, you know, that people say he said that he didn't say, but I'm pretty sure he said this one where they, they, he was, he was like given a, a thing of pudding and he like, he was like, somebody was like, what do you think of the pudding, Winston? And he said, the pudding has no theme. <laughs> and so hopefully my 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 uh, my work is not putting without a theme. But it, but in more more seriously, I would say there's kind of two things. You know, a lot of the people listening are entrepreneurs or investors. So they know the following itch. The itch is you go looking for something and you cannot find that thing. And it bothers the heck out of you. And so if you were to apply that to my like literary and writing life, that's essentially what I do. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you can make it sound complicated, but really the simple truth is I see, I go on Amazon, I look for a book to buy, I don't find it, or I don't find one that I think like is of sufficient quality based on just, yeah, you I've know, got a sort of quick back of the envelope estimations. I'm like, oh, this was, you know written 50 years ago and maybe it needs an upgrade or it's like it was like out of print or somebody clearly had an agenda here and I look for the book I want to read if I can't write it I sort of have this commitment to myself that I'll just keep pushing until I figure out that either someone's done it in which case I can just pre-order it or I'm going to see kind of like why why hasn't anybody you know why hasn't anybody done this this sort of seems obvious to me and in each case, if you were to look back at my projects, like I wrote about this ancient Roman senator, Cato the Younger, and the other three books you mentioned, it was a case of just really like kind of being flummoxed why nobody has done this. Like it just like some of this, you know, this sort of seems obvious to me, but it doesn't. And I spend my life around books. And then I, when I find that if I'm the right person for the project and I have some special reason to do it, I can, you know, I've gotten it across the finish line a few times. I would say that's, that's kind of the, the operational piece of it. The more thematic piece of it is, I was a you know I was a reader growing up, and even even as a kid, the stories that I enjoyed were stories about endurance and stories about adventure and stories about people who created things and who invented things. I'm a big fan of people who push the limit. I admire them hugely, and 
whether that is in like restoring a carousel that everybody had sort of left in the discard pile and then bringing it to Brooklyn Bridge Park and fighting to make that happen, or it's in creating PayPal, which everyone, which I mean, which literally called like one of the five worst business ideas of 1999, right? When it debuted, I think that I'm drawn to that kind of, whether it's like creativity, innovation, endurance, all that, that cocktail of stuff. I think that that's, that's what I'm, I'm compelled to write about, right? And so in each case, my subjects had a version of that, but there is no, you know, it's really like there are some writers I think who have a formula or they have some, they have something like, I got to do this and then I have to do this and then I have to do this. I'm much more episodic. Like I, I have to, I have to see an idea. I have to know that I'm not just copycatting someone else and that I can add something new to the shelves. And then I've just got to go whole hog into it for a few years. Yeah. And and just knowing that, I mean, it's, you know, remarkable to me. I think it's incredibly impressive, uh, just the level of ambition of like all of your projects being three, five, you know, six years. You know, given that that amount of time, do you have some system, maybe it's a running list on your phone of like things you're thinking about writing and, and what's your process of going through and making the decision to actually commit to a project? Because it's a massive commitment. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. I'm smiling because it's I actually have this thing. It's the it's literally it's like all caps and it's the most disorganized document you've ever seen in your entire life. And it's called the Book Ideas Master Doc. And it's like it it's it's a mix of you know like emails I copied and pasted over or like random links to PDFs, right? So I'll give you I'll give you an example. Let's do it live, right? Let's like sort of okay. show you what I added two or three days ago based on a hunch or a kind of speculation. On Friday, I hadn't seen this movie, but you know, th- there's this movie Downfall that's about Adolf Hitler's like last days and the fall of Germany. And the the day after, I do what I often do, like I'll I'll sort of have some thoughts in my head, and I will just go sort of googling around, right, and like Wikipedia level research. And in the course of that, one of the things that engaged me was there's this website for the Holocaust Memorial that's in Israel. It's called Yad Vashem. And within the Yad Vashem website, there's all these stories about people who protected, you know, Jewish people and and many others, like at great risk to their own lives. Like, and I think there's some award that's given annually, but there's a lot of like books and treatments and movies, right? This is everything from like Schindler's List to, to you know. And so I started looking at 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 stories about people like that. And I found this like French couple that was responsible not for, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, they, they set out on like a 30 or 40 year quest to find for, for people from the Nazi high command to bring them to justice. And these stories are like spy thrillers. I mean, they're unbelievable. And there have been a few books in this domain, but basically I sort of spent all this time and I like found a couple stories where I was like, huh, someone should really do a book about this. And so then all I did was I took the PDF of, there was a Department of Justice memo I found about one case where the US government actually worked with one of the the sort of former Nazis and it was a big scandal and the department did a kind of house cleaning and wrote the song report. And I was like, you know, someone should really like it's so complex. It's so interesting. Like, you know, what moral lines did we cross? What was right? What was wrong? And so I put that just I copied the little paste of it, the link to the PDF in that document, not two and a half days ago, right? Um and I don't know if I'll come back to it. I suspect I will. Most of the time I come back to this document pretty regularly. And what I do is I just sort of revisit, rethink, and I look to see if somebody else has done a book. I'll give you an example of when it doesn't work out, just so listeners have a sense of this. 
uh, before I wrote the PayPal book, the proposal that I had finished, that I was actually just like just about to like try to get Simon and Schuster to do, was a biography of Bruce Lee. I thought Bruce Lee was just like super interesting and much more interesting. You know, people sort of see him as like a martial arts movie person, but he is much more than that. His life had a lot of different dimensions. You know, he and he died very very young, but left this massive imprint on Hollywood. And I had sort of finished his proposal, and then I find out, come to find out, like somebody else has been working on a book for like five years, right? And he speaks Mandarin, he's a martial artist, you know, he's a smart person, had written books before. And so I, I sort of politely like abandoned that project, added that book to cart and moved along, right? And sometimes I'll just put, I'll just put stuff in. This is funny. It's funny sharing this. It's like, this sort of shows you like how helter skelter some of these things can be. Sometimes I'll just put something in. Like I, I put in a little bit ago, I was like sports book. And I was not not because I like watch a lot of sports, but just because I think sports are this incredible domain of competitiveness and ambition and self improvement and people overcoming what they think their limitations are, right? And so I was, it was literally just like sports book. And what that means to my brain is like go back, start to think about some of the untold great sports stories, right? Like I think, for example, like the Olympics have a bunch of stories that are still not well told, and. That, that's sort of the process is I have this big document and I just add to it and then I can, but then I sort of move on for a little while until I figure out what I'm going to do next. I love it. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating process. Um, I really hope that you write this, you know, kind of uh, spy thriller around Nazis and, and and bringing some of the Nazi high command to justice. Because I would love just you know you saying that my mind's already like, oh, that would be a fascinating book because it's a it's a genre I'm super into. I love that process. Thank you so much for walking us through that live. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you know, so you've I love that you added in the Cato book as well too because it also just goes to show how very different the the books that you've written are. Um, I. So I want to kind of focus in for a second on the founders, uh, which is the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley and a mind at play, which is all about how Claude Shannon invented the information age. And, you know, we're going to link to these in the show notes. I think these are both books that our audience would be fascinated in. Um, So I just want to see if you could talk a little bit about both of these books and what you learned writing them. You know, I'm curious in particular what surprised you the most or what still resonates with you the most about each of these books. Yeah, why don't why don't we go in chronological order? Because a mind at play, which is about Claude Shannon, was before the founders. So for those who don't know, you know, if you sort of thought about like the great forgotten geniuses of the 20th century, there, you know, one of the folks who was on par with like an Einstein or a Feynman was a gentleman named Dr. Claude Shannon. He invented a field called information theory. And the easiest way I can think to explain it is. If you're listening to this or watching the video, the reason it doesn't take you like five weeks to like listen to the audio or, you know, to download the video is because of compression algorithms that Claude Shannon identified. He identified that you could take all information, no matter what it was, and create bits, the fundamental unit of information. And then he discovered that you could compress them and send them with a minimum of loss. All right. And there were a bunch of techniques he developed. We don't have to go into the science, but he was a hugely consequential figure in 20th century science. And nobody had written about him. I wrote the book. I could go, we could just talk about him and what, what I learned doing the book. But I would say there's kind of, there's kind of two lessons. One is a lesson from his life and the other is a lesson in doing the book. The lesson from his life is if you can find a way to see your work as play, you could unlock a superpower. Because one of the things that Claude Shannon did is that he really had no regard for anybody's opinion of him. 
it was kind of amazing, actually. You know, he was this heralded scientist, but he would reject speaking invitations. He would not like go to accept awards. He had to be dragged to do certain things. But at the same time, he was building toys in his house and he was building like a, fi- a flamethrowing trumpet, a chess playing computer, you know, some of the earliest sort of gadgets that we take for granted, Claude Shannon built. And I, I just kind of, you know, you could sort of look at it and say, well, well, that was silly or, you know, that sort of thing. But actually, the same mind that created information theory, the science also made, you know, Endgame, the chess playing computer. And it all came from this spirit of play. He was always playing. And I think, you know, there have been great other books written on this. And this topic has kind of been picked over a bit. But the reason that it's interesting in Shannon's life is Shannon also, you know, won the presidential Medal for Science, whatever, the National Award for Science. You know, he was elected to every academy you could be elected to. So it wasn't that he was just sitting around twiddling his thumbs or like eating bonbons and playing. It was that he like made massive contributions to science, right? And was admired by people like Steve Jobs and saw everything he did in this spirit of play. So I, I really took from that. And like, I think, you know, that that's an important thing that I think a lot of adults, like it's easy to lose sight of. Um, so that's kind of one lesson. The meta lesson I learned from the book, this is... um. I don't think I've ever actually shared this before, but it it was just something I realized like about a month or two ago. You know, some of the people that I interviewed passed away during the course of my time interviewing them. And there were a couple of people I had thought to reach out to that I never got to because they passed away, right? And, um, And I think one of the things that like it taught me, like if you interact, here's a good example. I interacted with Claude Shannon's widow and then she passed away before the book came out. So I had one of the last interviews with Betty Shannon, who's an enormous consequential figure in her own right. And it just made me very cognizant of, I would say like not losing stories or like sort of not, not taking for granted that the people, whether in your life, your professional life, or if you're a storyteller, like if you want to write a book, don't assume that the person, the subject, the friend, the parent is going to be around forever right? Like I learned this very powerfully. There were people that I interviewed and then the next year they were gone. And that left a pretty deep impression on me. I don't think, I don't think I've ever actually really thought about it until the last couple of months. But I remember thinking about, back on that process and being like, wow, you know, there were people that we just can't talk to now. Shifting Gears, you know, The Founders is a book, the subjects of that book are better known to your audience. In fact, frankly, to the world at this point, sort of Elon Musk is a household name, you know, everywhere. And the group of people who created the company are people like Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, the founders of YouTube, the founders of LinkedIn, Tesla, SpaceX, et cetera. They're generally pretty well-known group, but no one had really gone back and looked at these first years of their life. Then they didn't know what they were doing. They were very young. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't even, you know, they didn't have like, you couldn't walk into a room, say the name Elon Musk and have people wreck. It was just, it was just another person, another entrepreneur in the world. Right. And I think you asked the question, like, what did I take away from doing that book? And the thing that I would say has one of the most powerful imprints on me, I, let, let's do two. Let's do one that's like a consequence of the book itself. And then the other is the process of doing the book. The learning from the book itself is that talent can come from the most unexpected people. So there's a bunch of economics around this, right? But there's actually like a couple, like Danny Kahneman has done some work around this, but it's very hard to suspend our judgments about people, you know? And so you sort of have an impression in your mind of like someone who does a certain thing. But the story of PayPal is partly Peter Thiel and, and his, his others in the leadership team suspending that judgment and hiring a bunch of people who may not have had any business doing a payments company and then managing to make it successful. 
And I think to some degree, that is true of almost all startups, because you have to be a bit of an outsider to an industry to decide that everything that the industry is doing is wrong, right? Like, that's hard to do if you're cut from central casting. But it's on overdrive at PayPal. You know, they hired a former journalist to do customer service at the beginning. You know, you had people who had no experience in the industry who were launching a payments platform. Max Levchin and Peter Thiel famously didn't know what chargebacks were. Chargebacks are like a fundamental principle within the credit card industry, and they're building this payment processor, and they had to they had to sort of act, they had to sort of flatly admit, like, what are chargebacks in one meeting with somebody from the industry? I sort of take that, and the positive lesson from it is, you really don't know, I mean, you really should never judge, like, from a first impression or a first interview, someone's capacity for something, or their capacity to be great at something. Because a lot of the people who are super talented at PayPal, like, they would have been real sort of square pegs in other round holes, right? But they fit right in there and they managed to make the company successful. The lesson from doing the book is people, and this is, I don't want this to sound too Pollyanna, and there are other lessons and we can get into them. There's a ton of them. But one of the things that I re realized was people want to share their stories. You know, I had this experience of like, I interviewed around 300 people for this book. And time and again, what would happen is, people would start and schedule maybe like a half hour with me because they thought, okay, this is just some person, he needs a, something. And then we would end up having these like epic long, like two, three hour conversations. You know, and these are some of the busiest people in the world. And I remember thinking like, what, what's the reason? And then I realized like, actually most of us aren't listened to most of the time, right? Like that's actually like, we have a listening deficit to a degree. And it, it, it just, the whole book process, and we can go into the ways I structured this, but the whole book process taught me to be a much more careful listener. I don't do it perfectly. And like when you have a seven-year-old, you know, you sort of have, there's some, some frustrations that come in with listening too much. Um, but I, it's taught me to be a much better listener. That was a longer answer than you wanted maybe, but you know, I think it's worth it. No, that was amazing. No, that was incredible. I mean, you did, uh, I teed up a simple question. You, you know, slam, slam dunked it with a couple of amazing answers. Um, I want to ask a little bit of a different question. You know, from the outside looking in, the the projects you've taken on seem to me like intimidating and very ambitious projects. You know, just even looking at the founders being like, I'm not in Silicon Valley. You know, we talked about this and you had some fascinating perspectives on it, you know, um, we were talking about what we would cover today, but, you know, being like, here's some of the most influential people in the world. I'm going to go try to interview them and piece together this story kind of back in time. I think a lot of people would probably say, whoa, that's I'm like way out of my depth. And so I guess the question I wanted to ask is, um, how do you get past the fear of covering such ambitious topics? And maybe part of that is your, you know, your kind of fear tolerance is just lower. And then I guess the second one is like, do you grapple at all with imposter syndrome? And, and, and how have you worked around that or gotten over that? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, I hope we. I hope we have time because this is a good one. We've got time. <laughs> so here's what I would say. Like it was. I laughed when you played it back to me because the like, if someone had played back to me the reality of what you just said, like oh, so these are some of the most influential. I probably would have been freaked out at the beginning, and I know I was. Here's what I would say. I'm going to answer your second question first with just a declarative, which is absolutely 100. I basically bathed in imposter syndrome for six years while writing this book. It was not pleasant, and and. You know, I think that if you're doing a project like this and you don't have a little bit of imposter syndrome, you're probably like not approaching it the right way. Like maybe there's two people in the world, I don't know, maybe like Kara Swisher and like one other person, like don't have imposter syndrome when they're doing these interviews. But you would be foolish if you're walking into Elon Musk's living room 
and you're about to talk to him about this period in his life and you don't have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Now, mine was on overdrive just because that's sort of how I'm wired. Um, what I would say is I had different strategies and techniques to get over that. And and it's it's not unique to my circumstances, meaning somebody listening might not ever write a book that's interview-based, but you are probably, or maybe, going to be like pitching a, a venture capital firm for funding, or you're going to be presenting your idea somewhere, or you're going to have to recruit, and you, or you're trying to get recruited by a company. And I, I answered my kind of imposter syndrome with like a few different techniques, and I'll go through them quickly so that there's some meat on the bones of what I said. The first is, over time, I accepted that I was not going to be, you know, I wasn't going to be as smart as Elon Musk at, I don't know, creating SpaceX. That was just never going to happen, right? But where I knew I could be great was in the writing of narrative nonfiction books, right? Which he has not done. Now, he might be better than me. Uh, he's actually a pretty widely read person. He's a gifted writer. Like, I think he could do it if he wanted to. But I accepted that in this particular domain, like, I was like a few steps ahead of him, right? Which gave me just enough confidence when you're in the room so you don't, don't start breaking out hives, right? My second answer to the imposter syndrome was just maniacal, insane, absolutely crazy overkill preparation. And I mean, this is like, just again, it's sort of, partly how I'm wired, but partly how I think these projects should be approached. Like the person I look up to most in the writing world, one of them is Robert Caro, who like you talk about spending six years on my books, he spends 10 years and he like moves to the places his subjects live, right, to really go whole hog. And like he's the, he is like, he if there's like a kind of comparable figure, he's he's it in my, he's the guy in, in my field. I always thought to myself, like, what would Robert Caro do? It's like, well, he would just like watch everything, listen to everything. There was a period of time, Daniel, where the only podcasts I listened to were of my interview subjects. The only videos I watched at night when I needed to wind down were of my interview subjects. The like it was I went into a cave. And what I did was I assumed that if I read, watched, or listened to everything they said, then I was at least coming in with the ability to not make big mistakes right? Like I wasn't going to say anything that I had seen in an interview that offended them or that I heard that they didn't want to respond to. But I just went way overboard with the preparation and that helped to a degree. The other thing that helped is I built structures so that some of the anxiety like would, would go away. Like I'll give you one example. This is a small minor one, but it's actually kind of important. I'd always make sure to show up to interviews super early. And when we had talked about this before, I told you I sort of always built in like the Uber gets a flat tire time, which is like an excessive amount. It's like, you know, an hour extra. And I'd be waiting in the parking lot of whatever building I had to go into so that I knew that there was going to be no interruption. So I wouldn't dial up my, my angst or my nerves about it, right? I always made sure to like find a FedEx location next to the place that I was going to do the interview. And I would print out my, if I couldn't have a printer because I was on the road, I would print out the interview questions at the FedEx near where I was going to do the interview and then go over to the interview so that the interview questions weren't on a digital device. They were always available to me. And like, there was nothing, I was short of somebody like taking them out of my hand. Nothing bad was going to happen. 
I did this, and this is the final one, then we can move on. I, I built if-then statements into my questions. So this is like, you know, sort of engineers will be familiar with this, but I at the bottom of all my interview questions, I would have if going well, and then I would have like 15 other questions. And then, and then I, in, in particular circumstances, like I would say, like I write to myself, like if going badly, pivot to this. And so I had all these fail safes built in to deal with it because the truth is what you said was right. I was an outsider of Silicon Valley, never created a company, never raised a dollar of VC funding, right? I've sort of gotten money from publishers, which is a little bit of a different, but there's some echoes, but I was coming in, not really knowing the Silicon Valley ecosystem, not reporting on technology for 10 years. So I was coming in behind the eight ball and my answer to it was a few of the things I just talked about. It's no, it's an incredible answer. I mean, and I love obviously what shines through is, you know, uh, you know, we're going to get into founders, but obviously a clear parallel with a lot of the people that you're covering is they're obsessive about what they're doing. You're equally obsessive about what you're doing and you pour so much time and energy and effort and kind of care into it. Um, you know, it really shines through in the books. I, I want to ask about your favorite books. You brought up Robert Caro there. I guess the question that I have for you is, you know, and this is super wide open, can be favorite books in any category. What books have had an impact on you personally or what books or kind of authors, you know, similar to Robert Caro, do you admire their work or what they've done? I would say I'll, I'll throw out a few titles, but the, this list is very long. So I'll kind of keep my comments relatively brief. Among the people who do the work that I enjoy, who do it the best, like Michael Lewis is definitely at the top, as, as close to the top list as you can get. You know, his books are engaging. They're, they're beautifully written and they're exceptionally well-researched. And it, it, he makes it look easy. I mean, that's the worst part of the whole thing is that you don't get the sense that this is like particularly taxing for him. Although I know good writing is hard for anybody, but his books are just like world, world class. And I would say Moneyball and The Blind Side are particularly striking. So he's one and I love those books. And I would really recommend him to anybody. The cool thing about his books is that you get to, you can experience both the book and the movie. And the writing is really easy to get through. Like he's got a, I mean, he's just, he's, just, he's a master of the craft. There's just nobody as good. In that same spirit, more historical is an author named Candace Millard. So Candace Millard wrote this book. She's written a bunch of books, but she wrote a book called Destiny of the Republic. Um, it's about James Garfield, who's a president that, you know, is not on the tip of anybody's tongue, but is, it's a really good book. She wrote about Teddy Roosevelt. Um, she wrote about Winston Churchill. So what she does that's so cool is she takes a figure like Winston Churchill, where like everybody's written, like you'd think everything that's ever needed to be said, there's so many books about him. And she manages to find his first wartime experience and this kind of untold story about this first experience more when he's in Africa and she tells it incredibly well. And so that's the thing that I take away from, from that. More practically, because I think part of what you do well is you're trying to offer your audience like practical value, right? So I would say both those books have some practical value. I mean, both those authors rather in their collections. And but I would say, you know, there's this. Uh, it's a it's a little self helpy, help helpy. And I know he gets panned for different things. Um, but Wayne Dyer is somebody, and I'll I'll explain this. So there's like a caveat here. The caveat is I came to this book because I learned about Sarah Blakely, who was the founder of Spanx, the youngest female billionaire in the United States. I was always, I always like try to study outliers. Like I'm like, oh, like that's interesting. Like youngest female billionaire, like it's like a very small club uh, to begin with. And then to be the youngest, wow. 
The book she said most influenced her was this book called How to Be a No Limit Person by Wayne Dyer. It's an old book. And I just listen to the audiobook all the time because that is what Sarah Blakely said she did when she was like the age of 16, 17, and 18. And that, you know, it's for the right moment in your life, that kind of thing can be very, very helpful. And, and I know people have their strong opinions about it, but it's been inordinately helpful to me. Creative work or entrepreneurial work is by definition a high wire act. You are dealing not just like with the difficulty of doing the thing, you are dealing with your own enormous self-doubt that the thing can be done at all and that you're the person to do it, right? It is, in, and you, you're just racked with like the difficulty and the anxiety and what if it fails and what if this and what if that? And I find that that Wayne Dyer book really does help get through that. And in that same spirit, and I know he's much more popular and he's he's alive. David Goggins' first book, Can't Hurt Me, they left a real impression on me. It's His story isn't just the story of sort of a Navy SEAL and super athlete. What I like are the early chapters where he describes what his life was, because you would not think that anybody who comes from that could achieve what he's achieved. And it's like a testament to the human spirit. Like I remember going through difficult moments during the writing of PayPal, like where I was like seven days a week, every single day waking up. And this thing was just crushing me. And I didn't know if it would work. And I just remember listening to a lot of David Goggins on that audiobook and like really getting into it. And I, I, you know, can sound trite maybe to some people, but the stuff works. No, I completely agree. I mean, listening, I was, I guess I'm blanking on it now, but um, I recently listened to an interview with someone. And one of the things that they said is anytime they're working on a particularly challenging project, they always have some self-help book that they're reading and reflecting every single night just to like make sure they're getting some of that energy. Because I think to your point, you know, yes, it's, you know, when you're just the act of creation alone, especially if you do that with ambition as a high wire act, but it's also, I think uh, one of the biggest influences negatively can be you limiting yourself. You know, you talking about Wayne Dyer's How to Be a No Limit Person, which I'm definitely going to download it and listen to because I'm a fan of that. But it reminds me of a book I've been uh, that another guest brought up that I've been listening to recently called The Big Leap, which sounds very similar. And I, you know, that's a book that uh, I personally wouldn't recommend. It's just filled with so much fluff. But the big idea really in the book is like, don't limit yourself and try to recognize when you're upper limiting, you know, kind of yourself in a given instance. I think that stuff's incredibly helpful. Um, Amazing, amazing, amazing books. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to ask one final closing question, uh, which is, you know, if you could go back in time to your childhood, the start of your career, is there anything you tell your younger self? And this can be a reminder, this could be words of advice, you know, any wisdom. Is there anything you would tell your younger self? Depends on how much time I have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty young, or at least I see myself as pretty young. And so I've got, I've got miles to go, you know, so I'm not sure I'm in the advice giving business yet. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of cribbing this from a book that Tyler Cowen wrote about talent. Um, but I think one of the things that you do when you're writing a book is that every day, at least for my process, you are required to, to level up in some small way. Like you're getting sort of incrementally better because you're writing, right? And he has this idea of like, what is your equivalent of practicing scales? Like what a pianist would do when they're practicing scales. And I don't think that out like books have been, you know, self-enforcing scales for me. And they've forced my habits toward writing and toward the improvement of it and getting better at it and learning more techniques and more methods so I can do it faster and cleaner and crisper. And I would sort of tell my younger self, like, get to a place where that practice is happening. You know, I when I'm in book mode, 
I work seven days a week and I just keep going and I keep going and I keep going. And it's not like hours and hours necessarily every day, but I don't, I don't stop. And I have that unbroken chain of work. And to me, that's practicing skills. I think the younger self, a younger version of me would have been better served if I had figured out earlier that actually like, that's great. Like that's like fits my personality. It is the kind of obsessiveness I like. And figuring out that my skills were just like, just get writing done every day. And it'll just, it'll, you'll level up so much faster and it gets like so much easier over time because, you know, a good example is like, I'm starting to think about what my next project is going to be. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it. We might co-write something. And I was saying, I said, look, after the founders, I mean, I, this like, you know, next, whatever comes next is, is going to not be as difficult. This was grueling, Right. And so I think the idea of, but to my mind, the, the image in my head of that practicing scales thing has helped me get through what can sometimes be a monotonous exercise, right? And everyone has this, like every a business owner probably has this. Maybe it's making sales calls. Maybe it's writing pitch emails. Whatever that thing is, like you can find a way to treat it as practicing scales. And you're like, okay, this is just, this is going to get better over time. I love that advice. Um, you know, and it sounds, it's, it also reminds me of like, or I guess another similar thought is not just, you know, figure out what is your equivalent of practicing scales, but figure out how to make that a joyful thing. Cause it's like, you're going to be doing this forever. You know, you need to have this be a joyful exercise as you're in the middle of doing it. And I don't know, just setting that expectation earlier on that may feel like work to you when you're younger, but you need to find a way to kind of fall in love with that and get into the flow state. Um, it's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Thank you.